the National Archives podcast series, Tracing Marriages, Legal Requirements and Actual Practice, 1700 to 1836, presented by Rebecca Probert. I'm actually a professor of law at the the University of Warwick and have spent um, the, the past decade and more researching the history of marriage law and practice. And as part of doing that, I've carried out cohort studies um, of over 5,000 couples. So rather than tracing my own ancestors, I've been tracing other people's ancestors for the last 10 years and looking at them horizontally rather than vertically to try to build up a picture of patterns, where people married and how people married. So Hopefully this will be useful both to people who are still looking for ancestors to suggest where they may find them, and for those who've already traced their ancestors to contextualise their findings. So when you're looking to trace a marriage, there are basically three key questions to, to bear in mind. First of all, did the couples actually marry in a formal ceremony? If so, Where did they marry? And has a record of that marriage actually survived? Now, I'm going to be focusing on on the first two of those because the last, of course, is so often a matter of chance. Uh, You, I'm sure, will have come across um, cases where you're researching uh, particular records and then they seem patchy, there are marriages missing or where there's just nothing for a particular period. And this is one of my favourite quotations from the the records. Part of the... um, In ascertaining someone's settlements, they wrote to ask, um, were this couple married in your parish? And the response came back, well, several couple has been married at our church during that clerk's time, which was not entered in the register owing to his negligence, he being a very drinking man. (laughs) So records may be lost, they may have been stolen in some cases, or they may have never been recorded at all because of drunken clerks. But... The first two questions do deserve further attention. Did couples actually get married in a formal ceremony? Now, it's been claimed that informal marriages were common before Lord Hardwick's Act of 1753 came into force in 1754. So, for example, the legal historian Stephen Parker claimed that local practices meant that many, if not most, adults in an area might not be recognised by the civil law as married. The basic assumption has been that it was possible in this period to marry by a simple exchange of consent, and that... This exchange of consent might also have been accompanied by ceremonies such as broomstick weddings and hand fastings. Now, the research that I've carried out over the last 10 years or more has basically rebutted each of these ideas. And I'll I'll go on to explain um, how my research has, has shown these ideas to be false. So let's start with this idea of a simple exchange of consent. 
the idea that that by itself created a marriage, that all you had to do was say, I do, and you were married. When you actually look at the primary sources, the legal cases, um, the reports um, of disputes, it becomes clear that an exchange of vows was binding on the parties, but it wasn't a marriage in and of itself. So one piece of evidence that supports that is that if there was a dispute between a couple as to um, whether there had been a, a contract of marriage between them, and one party succeeded in persuading the court that actually there had been this exchange of vows, the court did not then say, you are now man and wife. It ordered the couple to solemnise their marriage in church. So recognising the contract as binding, but not a marriage in and of itself. For the marriage to be completed, it needed that final element of solemnisation in church. And between the contract and solemnisation, the parties enjoyed no special legal rights. So if one party died between contract um, and the intended solemnisation, then there were no inheritance rights, for example. They were simply not regarded as married for any legal purposes. So, exchange of vows, binding, but not a marriage by itself. Now, if the exchange of consent wasn't a marriage, then the idea of folk ceremonies that rested on this exchange of consent being valid marriages also falls away. But because so many claims have been made about broomstick weddings and hand fastings, it was worthwhile investigating these a little further. So upon further investigation, it would appear that, if you'll excuse the pun, we have got the wrong end of the stick. When I was researching this, it was, this is very striking that there was absolutely no mention in any of the primary sources that I was looking at of anybody ever marrying by jumping over a broomstick. So I began to think, well, might it mean something else? And the key breakthrough came when I found this reference in the Westminster magazine from 1774. I need to explain the, the background to this so you understand what an odd statement it is in context. This was a case where a man eloped to France um, with his 13-year-old ward. When he got to France, he found out that actually it was quite difficult to marry a 13-year-old there, as well as in England. But a friend of his said, well, we can procure a priest for you. He can say the marriage service over to you. You know, you can pretend that it's a marriage. And his response was that he had no inclination for a broomstick marriage. And you read that and you think, well, that's very odd. Nobody said anything about 
jumping over a broomstick. So then, um, digging a little deeper, I looked at the, the fantastic electronic database um, 18th Century Collections Online, which has full-text, searchable um, pages of 100,000 books published in the 18th century. So suddenly you can start to search for just individual words in a way that you could never do if you had to sit down and read those books from, from scratch. And it became clear that broomstick was actually used as a synonym for sham. So when people talked about a broomstick marriage, they were referring to something that was sham or dodgy in some way. And in the occasional sketches that you get from this period of people jumping over a broomstick, that is what that was denoting. I mean, the 18th century is incredibly rich visually. If you think of the cartoons of Hogarth, they're full of visual shorthands to convey meaning. And when you had cartoons showing people jumping over a broomstick, they weren't saying, this couple jumped over a broomstick. They were saying, this couple married in a way that was slightly dodgy in some way. So the whole idea that couples did marry in this way simply faded away when looking at the evidence. And the same was true when it came to hand fastings. Now, you may well find references to a handfast wife in the English literature, but in that context, it is simply a term used for betrothal. So it is where you had a couple agreeing to marry each other or exchanging vows in the present tense, as we've seen, um, that they're, they're bound to each other in one sense, they're bound to go on and marry, but it's not yet a marriage by itself. The idea that hand fasting was a marriage for a year and a day um, comes from a conflation with certain, I say, supposed practices in Scotland. Because when you start to investigate the evidence for this being a practice in Scotland, that pretty much fades away as well. It was the Victorians who really developed this idea of um, trial marriages for a year and a day. Um, there are some patchy earlier sources, um, basically two accounts, a hundred years apart, coming from people who were travelling through Scotland, claiming that trial marriages had happened in the area they were talking about a hundred years earlier. Um, and I think we should always be slightly wary of travellers' tales, especially when they're not even purporting to comment on current practices. It's always a hundred years ago as well. It's, it's kind of movable target for these things. So there's no distinctive marriage um, for a year and a day um, in either England and Wales or it would seem in Scotland. Now... Those of you who have um, been researching your family history some time may already have come across the fleet marriages and be thinking, well, well how do these fit in um, to all this about um, informal marriages? And we know from the sources, which are now 
fantastically available in the National Archives, that fleet marriages are incredibly popular in the first half of the 18th century. About half of all marriages in London take place in the fleet. Now, if you could have got married just by a simple exchange of consent, the phenomena of fleet marriages makes no sense at all. Because why would you travel to the fleet to be married by a slightly disreputable clergyman who's been imprisoned for debt if you could achieve the same effect at home for free just by saying, I do? So fleet marriages are a really strong piece of evidence that this idea that you could get married informally just by exchanging consent can't be true. And it tells us that the key requirement for a valid marriage before 1754 was that you had an Anglican minister there. That is the only thing that makes sense um, in context. So... In terms of what marriage law in practice was before 1754, we can draw a distinction between the requirements that were mandatory and those that were directory, i.e. those without which you could not have a marriage at all, and those where the law directed that you should do something, but it didn't actually matter to the validity of the marriage whether you complied or not. So in the mandatory column, we have the presence of an Anglican minister, and the free consent of the parties. So that's the the minimum for a valid, legally recognised marriage. Um, The canon law also directs that if either party is under age, they should have the consent of the minor's parents that the marriage should be preceded by licence or bans, that it should be celebrated in the church where at least uh, the church of the parish where at least one of the parties is resident, and that it should be registered. But all those requirements are simply directory. So the fleet marriages, although they're deemed clandestine marriages because they're not complying with all these requirements of the canon law, they're still valid legal marriages. All these requirements, um, it's not essential to the validity if they're not observed. Given that couples didn't really have to get married in the parish where one of them was resident, where did they get married? Now, these are some of the um, cohort studies that I mentioned earlier, where I've taken groups from different communities and traced marriages for the couples involved. So the first three are all based on (coughs) samples from baptism records, so couples bringing their child to be baptised in that particular parish in the 20 years before uh, the 1753 Act. Bradford-on-Avon is based on uh, settlement examinations, and Cardington on uh, an all-too-rare listing, you know, the sort of thing that's just an absolute gem in a pre-census era where suddenly you get fantastic detail about all the households in the community. 
Now, some of the differences between the parishes are down to geography and the nature of the parish. So, if you look at the Scilly Isles, for example, you see an enormous number of marriages taking place in the parish itself. Because obviously, if you're on an island, it's quite difficult just to go over the border to a different parish.、Um, unfortunately, once you're off the island, it's quite easy to go anywhere in a boat. We had one marriage taking place from that sample in Kent, where we only knew that it was the right person because their name was Caesar Sap, and you don't have many of those in the records. Um, by contrast,、um, the little parish of Holy Trinity Goodramgate in York, you've got the smallest number of marriages actually taking place in the parish, and a really high number in adjacent parishes. Because in the city centre, you're just moving back and forth across parish boundaries、um, whenever you move house. Kilsby turned out to be particularly interesting in terms of the issue of. Compliance. Relatively small number of couples actually getting married in the parish. Surprisingly high number getting married elsewhere in Northamptonshire. And some of the places where Kilsby couples were getting married were places that were generally popular. So you had sort of small equivalents of the fleet. In Northamptonshire, where despite the fact the parish only had ten houses, they had six hundred marriages、um, in in the first half of the eighteenth century. So some Kilsby couples were going there, but a chunk of them, twenty couples, were getting married in Long Buckby, which didn't seem to be particularly popular at all. In fact, it was only couples from Kilsby and Long Buckby who got married there. But when we checked the original records, we found that they shared the same vicar during this period. So what looked like a clandestine marriage with couples going to a different parish to get married actually turned out to be absolutely regular. You can imagine the vicar from that parish saying, "Well, if you want to get married." You've just got to come to Long Buckby because I'm not going to make the journey to Kilsby to marry you. So, with some marriages that seem to be in the wrong parish, it's worth exploring why they were taking place in a different parish. Bradford on Avon is、uh, an example of what I was talking about earlier. Where the records are simply missing. The records for Bradford and Avon itself were quite good. The records for Wiltshire were very patchy. There were some,、um, I'd say, that were actually stolen and therefore unavailable to examine. So that's why that particular section is is so low. And we know that these marriages were taking place because couples were saying in the settlement examinations, "We got married." In this parish, at around this time, and you go to the records of that parish, and there's just a gap there. But the results for Cardington show what can be achieved if you've got a nicely located parish
um, in an area with good records. Cardington is right in the middle of Bedfordshire, and Bedfordshire has the best collection of transcribed registers for this period. So Cardington couples were pretty likely to get married in Bedfordshire because it was quite a journey outside Bedfordshire. And if they got married there, you were likely to be able to find them. So that um, managed to trace 93% of couples in the sample um, for this period. And the ones that I couldn't trace were ones where I only had the surname. And you know what it's like when you've only got one little bit of data to search with. Now, given what I was saying about the necessity of an Anglican minister earlier, you may have been wondering what the status of non-Anglican marriages was. And I've divided this into, you know, is there ever any evidence that these types of marriages were taking place? And if so, what their legal status actually was. With um, Jewish couples um, did marry according to their own rights and so did Quaker couples. We have enormous numbers of surviving records for Quaker couples from this period. Jewish marriages were basically accepted by default. At the time, they were essentially seen as a separate and almost alien race, and their marriages were therefore governed by Jewish law on the same way that if you had a couple from France come to England, you would test the validity of their marriage by French law. So they were effectively treated as foreigners in England whose marriages were on a different footing um, from those of anyone else. Quaker marriages, however, were bitterly contested. The Quaker, um, quite emotively named Book of Sufferings from the late 17th and early 18th century, describes the litigation over Quaker marriages and acknowledges that they haven't been able to get any definite statement as to their um, validity. By contrast, there's virtually no records of Presbyterian, Independent and Baptist marriages from this period. Um, The only register with any number in it is actually recording marriages of its members that took place in the Anglican Church. So the fact that the register exists doesn't always denote that they're recording marriages um, in that chapel. And it's very clear that these had no legal status at the time, nor does it seem that they made any attempts to argue for the legal status of the few that took place. In the first half of the 18th century, you've got a handful of refugee Protestant communities Um, But these are very limited, declining, and again, their status is um, slightly dubious by this point. With Catholic ceremonies, um, there is evidence um, Catholic couples marrying in Catholic ceremonies. There's also evidence that some went through an Anglican ceremony as well to secure the legal status. And I've described their legal status at this time as dubious 
because you find occasional cases that seem to accept them as having some standing, but the majority view seems to be that it's not. Um, it's not on the same footing as an Anglican ceremony. It is, in essence, merely the same as a simple exchange of consent and not entitled to any higher legal treatment. So, 1753 marks a change. We have Lord Hardwick's Act passed to basically stamp out the problem of fleet marriages. You can understand why you wouldn't necessarily want half of all marriages in London escaping um, the, the overview of the church. And so under Hardwick's Act, a number of the requirements that were previously only directory now move over into the mandatory category. So again, it's necessary to have the, the Anglican minister and free consent, but it's also now mandatory for the marriage to be preceded either by bans or licence, to be celebrated in um, a church or public chapel, and for there to be parental consent if the parties are marrying by licence and one of them is under the age of 21. However, although it says that it has to be celebrated um, in a church or chapel. It doesn't actually have to be the right church. So although the Act does stipulate that the, the marriage should take place in the parish where at least one of the parties is resident, it also says explicitly, but we cannot invalidate a marriage after it's taken place if it took place in the wrong parish. So this opened up um, the possibility for getting round some of the requirements of the Act. Obviously the whole point of having bans called is to bring the, atten the marriage to the attention of the community. If you're having the bans called in a parish where you're not known it rather defeats the purpose. So this was a huge loophole in the Act. And it also created a huge loophole for the marriages of minors. Because your parent, if you were under 21, could forbid the bans in church and prevent the marriage from going ahead. But if you were getting married in a different church they had no opportunity to do so. And it's only if you're getting married by licence under the Act that advanced parental consent is needed and the lack of which invalidates the marriage. The Act also lays down this, this hierarchy of who can give consent and who therefore is entitled to dissent. I mean, the, the 1750 Act was designed to tighten up licenses because one problem that had existed before then was blank licenses being issued so that you could basically get married anywhere. The, the 1753 Act tightens up who can issue licenses but it clearly doesn't solve all the problems because you still find licenses being granted on very flimsy 
evidence sometimes about where the parties are, are resident. I've got an elopement from the early 19th century where they got a licence um, on the basis that the wife was resident in the parish where they were intending to get married. And she'd never set foot in that parish before the marriage took place there. I mean, you could, a special licence would basically allow you to get married any time, any place, anywhere, basically. And that, that's why it's such a staple of romantic fiction, as well as some uh, romantic stories. Those are very limited in this period. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury issues a dictat um, in, I think, 1758, saying that he will only issue special licences to people of quality. So you have to be... I mean, it's an incredibly specific list. You either have to be aristocracy or a member of parliament. M MPs always manage to get <laughs> privileges. Um, but just, just on that, that point, you know the bit in Pride and Prejudice when Mrs Bennet discovers that Elizabeth is going to marry Darcy? And she says, you must be married by special licence. That is another indication of Mrs Bennet's shaky grasp on legal matters, because plain Mr. Darcy, however wealthy he was, would not necessarily be entitled to be married by special licence. Premarital pregnancy is not uncommon in this period, um, although not perhaps as common as uh, some historians have, have claimed it to be. But that, that's a topic for another paper. I mean, a licence does allow you to get married more quickly. No bans. I mean, there's residence requirements. So the Act says if you're getting married by licence, you have to have been resident in the parish for the previous four weeks. But, of course, you can then lie about whether or not you've been resident, and it depends entirely on how scrupulous the clergyman is and whether he can actually be bothered to check whether you're, you're resident there. But this clause in the Act means that even if you lie, the marriage is still valid. It can't be challenged on the basis that you weren't actually resident in the parish where the marriage is, is taking place. There is a cachet attracted to, to privacy in this period. So you do find references to people being embarrassed by the calling of, of bands. Um, and I think it's Fanny Burney who sort of comments in the, the late 18th century, you know, nothing could be more terrible than a public wedding. This idea that you're there for people to, to see and scrutinise. But the majority of people, 90% of, of people in this period, are getting married by bans, which is why these loopholes about parental consent and the place of marriage are so significant. The other... Um, aspect of the 1753 Act, which is only directory, is actually registration. So even if we have a clerk like the one we met at the start, who's had a few too many drinks, hasn't registered the marriage, the marriage is still perfectly valid, however difficult it may be to trace it at a subsequent date. And this is quite surprising if you've actually looked at um, Lord Hardwick's Act because it goes into incredible detail about 
the registers that should be kept. It says how they should be lined, how they should be numbered, what sort of paper they should be on. But all this is merely directory. And you can see the balancing act that the law is trying to carry out here. It's wanting to channel registers into a standard form to improve the registration of marriages. But equally, Parliament has no desire to invalidate swathes of marriages if the incumbent forgot to number the pages. So the law of marriage is actually quite sensible in setting out which requirements invalidate a marriage and which can't. And similarly, um, although the Act directs that there should be witnesses to the marriage, it's again perfectly valid, even if there, there are none. So Hardwick's Act has quite a profound effect on where people marry. By the time that a, a generation have, have grown up with Hardwick's Act, over 60% of them are getting married in Kilsby itself, rather than the 25% um, before 1754. So even though the Act is saying that this is a directory requirement and not mandatory, people are complying. The fact that it's there in a statute exerts a pull that the canon law simply didn't have. And of course the improved registration means that it is possible now to trace 100% um, of marriages um, as managed for the, the parish of Moorland in Westmoreland. As for non-Anglican marriages after 1754, again, differences are made between different denominations. The Act is not particularly helpful when it comes to Jewish and Quaker marriages. It says that they are exempted from the need to comply with the Act, but it doesn't say what their status is. It doesn't say that those that take place will necessarily be valid. So this remains a live question. Um, and it's not until the, the 1790s that you actually have a case on a Jewish marriage, upholding it according to Jewish law. And for Quaker marriages, it's not until the early 19th century that you get a case saying, we accept this as a valid marriage. And significantly, it's only after the courts have begun to believe that it was once possible to marry by consent, that they accept Quaker marriages as valid. So Jewish couples and Quakers continued pretty much as before the 1753 Act. Other Protestant denominations are not exempted, and again, they continue um, to, to marry in the Anglican Church because they hadn't really built up any special marriage practices of their own before 1754. Again, Catholics not exempted, and here almost all the ones that I've looked at do seem to have gone through two ceremonies. I carried out a little study looking at Coton Court in Warwickshire, 
where 95 couples got married in a Catholic ceremony between 1755 and 1800. And every single one of them also went through an Anglican ceremony. Usually the day after the Catholic ceremony. Technically, of course, they should have had the legal Anglican ceremony first. Um, but most of them went for the Catholic one first, or occasionally they would have them on the same day to fudge the issue of which had actually taken place first. So the implications of all this for family historians, the likelihood is that your ancestors did get married in church rather than any form of informal or folk ceremony. So it's worthwhile to keep looking for a match. And just as a final footnote, for those couples getting married in the first half of the 18th century who seem to be getting married in the wrong parish, I carried out a study looking at marriages across Northamptonshire and where couples were both from a parish different to the one they were getting married in. Two-thirds of those couples turned out to have some link with that parish. Sometimes it was that they had been baptised there, sometimes it was their parents had been married there. Sometimes I couldn't actually trace the link because I'm talking about hundreds of matches here and it's not always possible to do an in-depth study of every single one. But there, were, there would be a cluster of people with the same name who had got married in that parish a generation earlier. So if you find a marriage that seems to be in the wrong parish, it's worth looking in those registers just a little bit further, because you may find a completely different branch of the family tree. I hope that's um, proved of interest. This podcast was recorded live on the 23rd of October 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>